0: L'kotei Sichais, Chelek Aleph, we're learning the Sicha of Purim, Parshas Titzave. Every Shabbos has a connection to the days of the preceding week and to the week that follows. The Zer teaches all six days are blessed from the seventh, as it's particularly the Shabbos that gives blessing to the six days that follow it. This Shabbos, the connection that exists to the days that will follow, is even more pronounced via our obligation to read the portion of Zachar. Read the Shabbos before Purim, recalling the actions taken by the Amalekites, is uniquely connected to the days of Purim, so much so that the Torah reading of Purim itself is the portion that speaks of the actions of the people of Amolik, which we read at the end of the portion of Tetzave. Reading this portion before Purim is taught by the Gemara in the Tractate of Megillah as the fulfillment of memorializing the events of Purim leading up to the fulfillment of the mitzvahs of Purim on Purim Day as we are instructed to in the Megillah to recall and fulfill the mitzvahs of these days, from the time of Mordechai and Esther onwards. The connection of this Shabbos, Shabbos Zohar, to the days of the week that follow, and particularly to Purim, is actually more potent this year than other years. The year that the Rebbe is referencing is the year 1979, Tovshin Lamites, on Matzah Shabbos parshes Tetzavah, when the Rebbe fabringed, and this sicha is a combination of thoughts that the Rebbe taught in the at fabringen in combination with the sichas. This year, says the Rebbe, Shabbos is on the 11th day of the month of Adar, which is the day of the month on which the reading of the Megillah can already be fulfilled. The first Mishnah in the tractate of Megillah tells us that the Megillah may be read on the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th of Adar. And it may be read at this advanced date as early as the 11th, as this is when villagers might come to the larger towns to gather, to hear the Megillah, if these advanced dates were to fall out on a Monday or a Thursday when the rabbinical courts were in session in the larger towns, and there was public Torah reading anyway, and these were market days for the villagers in the towns. Since the 11th is a date that is suitable for the reading of the Megillah, this is actually the case in our day and age as well, where circumstances would be significantly different to when we lived in our own land. Indeed, the Shulchan Arach states that one who will be at sea or traveling by caravan, and does not find a Megillah to take along, may read the Megillah on the 13th, the 12th, or the 11th without a blessing. And though, if necessary, one cannot wait for those days even, there are those who say, one may read Megillah from the very beginning of the month of Adar, and indeed the Ramah determines this to be the custom. Now there's an essential difference between reading the Megillah on the 11th, the 12th and or the 13th of the month, or reading the Megillah from earlier on, from the beginning of the month, even though readings on the 11th, 12th or 13th are also permitted only if absolutely necessary and there is no alternative. And the permission given to the villagers to hear Megillah from the 11th onwards too was just that, a leniency given by the rabbis because they would be gathering on those days in the larger towns, but Megillah read in the correct time would be Megillah read on the 14th and the 15th of Adar. Yet the reading, if done from the 11th, the 12th, or 13th, despite the leniencies involved, still has a greater connection to the days of Purim than if one has to take the leniency of reading even earlier on in the month. Why? What's better about those days, the 11th, 12th, 13th, that makes the reading more relevant to the days of Purim? It's still not Purim. Let's get a better understanding first of the Mishnah, quoted earlier, that begins with the words, the Megillah is read on the 11th, on the 12th, on the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. If reading the Megillah on the 11th the 12th and the 13th is just a leniency established by the rabbis for certain people at certain times and situations, why does the Tractate of Megillah begin with establishing the dates as starting from the 11th and not with the primary dates of the 14th and the 15th, as the Mishnah is about the mitzvah of Megillah and not about the days of the month? Why not establish the actual dates of the mitzvah first, and then talk about the leniencies? If it's about an accurate progression of dates in a month, when the mitzvah of Megillah could be fulfilled, the Mishnah could have been presented as from the 15th back to the 11th, the dates in order, but from latter to earlier. In fact, as the Mishnah continues, that is precisely how the dates are laid out. The Mishnah speaks of walled cities from the time of Joshua, where the Megillah is read on the 15th of Adar. Large villages and cities where the Megillah is read on the 14th of Adar. And then the Mishnah details the villages, but one can advance the reading based on when there is a communal gathering. We would also want to understand why, as many commentaries question, the Mishnah introduces the halacha with the words, Megillah Nikra's. the Megillah is read, as though leaving the one obligated to read out of the picture, versus the optional and more common phrase, koirin es hamegillah," the reader reads the megillah, or the megillah is being read. The reason behind this would be that with the way the dates are organized from the 11th up, the Mishnah intends to highlight that although the reason we can read from the 11th and on the 12th or 13th is because the sages were lenient so that the villagers could advance the day of reading the Megillah to a day where the community gathered in the city so that they could supply the food, the produce, with which to make the festival of Purim. They were the farmers. They provided the produce for their brethren in the cities for Purim day, or even as the Gemara determines, not so that they could, but that this is what the villagers or the farmers did. They supplied the food for their brethren in the cities where the crops grew, and the advanced date set by the rabbis was like a recognition and reward for that service. Yet the advanced or earlier reading is still in the category of the time for reading of the Megillah. In other words... The reading of the Megillah whether on the 11th or the 12th, despite this day being a resolution created for the good of the people, the desired outcome, the actual mitzvah of the Megillah being read, is accomplished, is achieved in what is now considered a time suitable for Megillah reading. The reading isn't only considered the fulfillment of the mitzvah on the part of the villagers on those dates— but the reading is referenced as Krias HaMegillah, a proper reading of the Megillah with no exceptions. The Gemara too makes this clear, that the men of the great assembly, the Anshei Knesset HaGdoilan, the days of Mordechai and Esther, who established the mitzvah of reading the Megillah, also established these different dates, when Megillah could be read, and these different dates were included in the Megillah itself hence the term used, megillah nekreis. The megillah is read, and not they read the megillah. In other words, reading the megillah in those days of the 11th or 12th isn't just that the reader read it because the time was formulated to suit their needs. No, it's the megillah is read. It's the megillah's time for reading, and whenever on those days it is read, it is the fulfillment of this mitzvah of reading the megillah. Beyond that even, Because the Talmud tells us that the great assembly in the time of Mordechai and Esther, the Anshei Knesset HaGdoila, alluded to these various dates in the Megillah itself with the words to fulfill these times of the mitzvahs of Purim in the appropriate time, in other words, not one, but several times were established for the Megillah to be read. Which means that reading the Megillah on the 11th or the 12th or the 13th, All these times fall under the same category of the mitzvah of reading the Megillah, just like the readings on the 14th and 15th. These dates are all included in the words zmanehem, the times, in the Megillah itself. They are not substituted dates or makeup dates or other dates, no. They are considered the actual dates for the reading of the Megillah, just like the 14th and the 15th of Adar. Now we can understand how reading the Megillah on these dates, the 11th, the 12th, and 13th, is very different to reading it even earlier on any day of the month, when it is deemed permissible if one may be traveling by sea or by caravan and won't have a Megillah. It's in the Talmud Yerushalmi that we learn that the entire month is appropriate for reading the Megillah. We learn this from the words, the month that was transformed for them, the l'simcha, from anguish to rejoicing. In other words, all month an individual can and must seek to fulfill this mitzvah of reading Megillah in these days of Purim. And yet, While this determination impacts the obligation of the gavra, the individual who has to do the mitzvah megillah, it does not speak to the law that impacts the chefza, the object of time itself. It's not like every day of the month has now become transformed into a time of reading the megillah or into Purim. This practically impacts the actual halacha, Jewish law, when one has an obligation of the fulfillment of a mitzvah on a certain day in Adar that will be lost if not fulfilled in that time, besides for the mitzvah of reading Megillah, and which mitzvah would take precedence. If it's in the earliest part of the month of Adar, then that timely mitzvah would take precedence. The reading of the Megillah might only take precedence from the 11th of the month onwards. Why indeed do those days, which are not really the established days of the festival, nor mentioned in the story of Purim, become a time for reading the Megillah? Perhaps we can say that the reason can be seen in the two aspects of Megillah, its writing and its reading, which are both unique, in that the writing of the Megillah was not like the writing of any other holy book of Torah. The prophets, the scriptures, certainly the five books of Torah, Those were all commanded by God to be recorded and written. The Megillah was originally a request from Esther, who asked the sages, kis vuni write my story for the generations. There was actually great debate around the fulfillment of her request. This is true as well for the actual establishment of Purim as a holiday and the obligation of reading the Megillah, which came on the heels of Esther's request that her story, the story of the miracle of Purim, be memorialized and celebrated for all generations. But once the Megillah was written, it became a part of our holy scriptures, equal to all other parts of Torah. And in fact, as the Rambam teaches, Maimonides teaches, even greater. All the books of the prophets and scriptures will become null in the days of Mashiach and redemption, says Maimonides, with the exception of the Megillah of Esther. This will continue to exist, just like the five books of the Torah, or as the Riva teaches, this impacts not just the existence of the Megillah, but its reading will continue, even as the readings of the other holy writings will become obsolete. This idea is expressed as well in the requested Write me into the generations of Esther. The Megillah, unlike all other holy writings, is written without God's name. This would seem to be a commentary on the quality of the holiness of the book, this lack of God's name. The reasoning behind this lack is actually explained on a practical level. The Persians wrote these these events into the annals of their history, replacing the divine miracle as events that transpired through their idolatrous deities. And it was for the purpose of protecting the sanctification of God that Mordechai did not put God's name into the Megillah. But we know well that the inner meaning is not in not mentioning the holy names of God in the Megillah, alludes to the fact that the unlimited, unnamed aspect of the divine, the Anoichi misha Anoichi, as the Altareb explains, an unknowable, unlimited, unlettered divine revelation, is directly associated with the events of Purim, to which the Gemara teaches, where do we find a source for Esther and her story in the Torah? In the words of God, Va'anoichi, Haster, Aster, I will surely hide my face from you. The concealment of God in the Megillah is sourced in the essential anoichi, which cannot be contained, constricted, or conveyed, not even in a holy name, and not even in the ineffable name of God, Havayah. In other words, the lack of God's name in the Megillah is because of the very essence of God therein that is beyond the limitation of names. Now we can go back and understand why the Mishnah begins the teaching of reading the Megillah with the dates of the 11th and the 12th and the 13th of the month. Though the Mishnah tells us that these dates are suitable for reading the Megillah, these dates are ultimately not like the readings on the actual dates of the 14th, in unwalled cities, the 15th of Adar in walled cities, and thus we question why the Mishnah begins with these dates. It is actually the readings of the villagers on the 11th of Adar that alludes to the general internal meaning of reading the Megillah. These three categories of readings in the cities, walled since the time of Joshua, large towns and villages, and the significance of when Megillah is read in each are spiritual representation of three aspects of divine service. Briefly, the big town that has a wall surrounding it reflects a protected service. No enemy thoughts can enter. There can be no breach of impurity in this person's divine service. A city dweller is someone who's not required to plow the land, to seed wait for the wheat to grow in order to fulfill his purpose in this world. He must just make use of what is available, turning it into a dwelling in a city of divine service. Here, too, one's divine service is not complex, is not difficult. In the village, one must uproot and plow the land that may yet be inhospitable. It's what creates concealment of the possibilities of what will yet grow. Breaking through the concealment will make divine service possible. In the language of Chassidus, a large town alludes to the world of Bria, the world of creation, where the spiritual work of the Seraphim manifests, the big city, the world of Yetzirah, where the work of the Chayos HaKedosh manifests, and a village, the world of Asiyah, the world of the service of the Eifanim, The difference between these three categories of angels in terms of man's strength and service is that the service of a town dweller is reflective of the source of intellect where contemplation of God and the grasping of the divine manifests. And so there's great pleasure in this work, derived as it is from grasping godliness like the laborer of the srofim who grasp godliness and in grasping God become nullified and consumed in their fiery passion and desire for godliness, the spiritual definition of big city work is the successful work with one's mitais, love of God and fear of God. This is the service connected to the world of yitzira formation, where God's attributes are reflected. Thus, the uniquely emotionally tumultuous divine service of the Chayes Hakadosh, the result of the emotional enthusiasm towards the divine attributes, and the service of the villagers, which represents the divine service of the Eifanim of the world of Asiya, is the service of gratitude or acknowledgment of the divine. Grasping the divine and the enthusiasm and passion are all within the framework of one's capacity to see truth and experience acknowledgement of such. The excitement here is not emo- emotional tumultuousness, but rather much like the excitement a villager might feel of seeing a king. While at this level of the villager, there's no actual experience of revelation of the divine that is experienced emotionally or intellectually, rather it is held as an acknowledgement manifesting in action, fulfillment of God's intention. Yet there's a characteristic of surrender before God in this divine service. In fact, this level of divine service of the aifanim is deeper at some level yet than the service of the srafim, whose essence becomes consumed in their grasp of divine wisdom. Therefore, through this service, God's glory is brought to manifest from its original place on high, in a manner that the seraphim cannot. And therefore the Mishnah begins with the reading of the 11th of Adar, the Megillah reading of the villagers, whose reading alludes to the essence of the Megillah in its entirety, to the external eye, this world of the villager, reflecting our world of Asiya, where we can but acknowledge, looks hidden and concealed, an Esther experience. But therein is found essence that transcends revelation, drawn down through the surrender of the Eifanim. Accordingly, we can also understand the connection of this Shabbos, its association to the days of Purim, and reading the Megillah with a portion of the Torah we read, Titzavah. This Torah portion is the only one since Misha's birth where Misha is not mentioned until Misha addresses the nation in Mishnah Torah. And our sages explain that it is because Moshe, in arguing for the life of the nation, said to God, if you will not forgive them, please just erase me from the book you have written, from the Torah. And Moshe's request was fulfilled in this portion as God fulfills the words of a tzaddik. With a simplistic glance, it appears, like the lack of Moshe's name in this portion is a negative. But knowing how sensitive the Torah is, to negative talk, and that even a non-kosher animal is referenced in the positive and not in the negative, we can understand that this too is reflective of a positive. And one can actually learn this here from the name of the Torah portion, Tetzaveh, which is from the first words of the portion, "Va'ata Tetzaveh, and you, Moshe, shall command the children of Israel, a reference to Moshe and his essential leadership. To explain this, We know that a tzaddik is Daimul Abayre, like his master. As it is above, so it is reflected below. The holy names of God are associated with assorted revelations, but essence is beyond name. The same is true for Moshe, our master, whose finite name is not mentioned in this portion, yet this Torah portion is so integrally connected to Moshe's very essence as the Rebbe of the nation, a level that transcends all soul names and appellations. It's the va'ata, the essential you of Moshe, that commanded the nation, connecting them to one another and bonding them to God, bonding even those who he stood up for, those who had built the golden calf, bonding them with the very essence of God. Accordingly, we can understand the connection between the Mishnah that teaches that Megillah can be read from the 11th and the concept of remembering a molek that is read in Zachar. The Shalaha HaKadosh teaches that the number 11 is equivalent to the latter two letters of God's ineffable name, the Vav and the hay, which equal 11, the first day that we can read the Megillah. And 15, the last day that we can read the Megillah, is the equivalent of the first two letters, the Yud and the hay. Of the Tetragrammaton. Hence, the Mishnah begins with the words Megillah is read on the 11th, because erasing Amalek, of whose ancestry Haman the Agagite was, is essentially connected to 11, the level of Vav Hay of God's name. The verse at the end of the portion of Bashalach that describes the eternal war with Amalek states. That until Amalek is completely eradicated and wiped off the face of the earth, God's name lacks wholeness. As long as there is Amalek, the revelation of the Vav and the Hay cannot be experienced. And there is only the revelation of the Yud and the Hay of God's name. The war then with Amalek is with the Vav and the Hay. The Vav and the Hay of God's name represent the garments with which we serve God in this world, our thought our speech, and our action. The amolek coldness is knowing one's creator and intentionally rebelling against God, so that one is held back from the performance of Torah and mitzvahs, the aveda of the vav and the he. Complete victory over amolek, the utter eradication of amolek, must be a service of the humility of the villager. The yud Aleph Jew, representing the observance of mitzvahs in the vav and He dimension, who observes the mitzvahs with his voice, his speech, his actions. This pure service alone has the energy to win over a Amalek and to eradicate its evil coldness. This service then brings us to the yud and the hey, the service of God with intellect, like that of the big cities, bringing about the facet of completeness of the order of the 11th to the 15th, the vav he to the yud he, incorporating the last possibility that the Mishnah speaks of when the day of reading, the 14th, would fall out on the Shabbos, and so the reading for the villagers would then be pushed up to the 11th, thereby incorporating the complete spiritual calculation of God's name Adnai, which when adding 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 equals the name Adnai. This will all be revealed in a state of wholeness and completeness when Mashiach comes, and the final war against Amalek will be won. Concluding the battle of the generations from Moshe to Mashiach, against the coldness and the evil of Amalek. When Mashiach will fight God's battle and be victorious, may it be speedily in our days now.